Hello, and welcome to the Spillman Insights Podcast, where thought leaders at Spillman, Thomas & Battle update friends and clients on legal and business issues. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first podcast companion to Spillman, Thomas & Battle's Decoded Newsletter. I'm Joseph Schaefer, a member in Spillman's Pittsburgh office, and with me today is Nick Mooney, a member in Spillman's Charleston, West Virginia office. Together, Nick and I chair Spillman's Technology Law Practice Group. When Nick and I were talking about what to cover in our first podcast companion episode, we kept coming back to the idea of what would be the least controversial thing that we could possibly cover. And of course, that made us um, think of President Trump, um, who is um, the furthest thing from a lightning rod for controversy that you can imagine. And that took us to the idea of online censorship. And online censorship is a hot topic these days, particularly because President Trump just issued what he has called an executive order on preventing online censorship. Now, Nick is going to go into President Trump's executive order in depth, talk about what it does, um, or rather <laughs> who it directs to do something, and um, what that means for the internet, what that means um, for us. But I'm going to tell you a bit about how we got there. So President Trump's executive order is the culmination of what has been perhaps two to three years of prominent conservatives claiming censorship on online platforms. Leading those charges are figures like Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, but President Trump has also levied that charge against major platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And what it refers to is a number of different concepts, things like banning accounts, individuals like Laura Loomer, for example, who just won a um, Republican primary in Florida, or what's known as shadow banning, where a platform will tweak its algorithm to depress a um, particular hashtag or post so that it doesn't get as much traction as it might otherwise, or simply temporary suspensions or other editorial decisions. So for example, if you've been paying attention on Twitter or reading the news, you might have seen some discussion about how a tweet that President Trump made several months ago involving a um, supposed CNN video of a um, black and white toddler playing together. How CNN, uh, excuse me, how Twitter designated that as manipulated media, which if clicked um, would take a viewer to a link that would explain exactly why that tweet was uh, misleading. It also refers to this idea of tweets being removed or other editorial notes being appended to them. So for example, just um, recently President Trump tweeted out a comment about um, mail-in ballots in which he argued that mail-in ballots would um, lead to widespread voter fraud. And Twitter um, flagged that tweet as going against its um, policies on voting and um, things like that in elections while also leaving it up in acknowledgement that um, as coming from the president's account, it had significant um, public interest value. Um, other things can involve just outright bans of accounts. For example, Twitter recently uh, made the news for purging the accounts of several thousand QAnon supporters. Um, QAnon being a conspiracy theory that is generally tied to conservative causes and um, supportive of the president. There have also been um, other bans or suspensions. For example, um, several weeks ago, President Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., was temporarily suspended from Twitter for posting a misleading video about hydro, um, 
hydroxychloroquine. Um, but this hasn't just affected um, Twitter. There have been videos that have been deleted for YouTube, for example. There um, was a account called Valuetainment that had a video deleted because it hosted a um, COVID-19 conspiracy theorist. Um, something similar happened to Brian Rose's London Real channel. And the responses from those creators has been different. Um, one creators acknowledged that YouTube has the right to remove that content, whereas another creator, um, the London Real account, um, has responded by raising funds to try to create its own online platform. Of course, Facebook has its own content moderation policies and has made its own content moderation decisions as well. Now, I don't want to suggest that this is all about President Trump and all about conservatives. Certainly, there have been other instances in which online accounts have been removed, people have been suspended, et cetera, most notably in the area of terrorism. Um, there have been a number of Al-Qaeda-affiliated um, accounts or ISIL or ISIS-affiliated accounts that have been removed as well. But um, certainly, the most attention in, that this has received in the United States has been because of what has been seen as a disproportionate impact on conservative thoughts, figures, and voices. And the argument has been that this activity by Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and other social media companies and online platforms amounts to censorship and shows a bias against and in fact, President Trump makes that point in his executive order when he talks about how, um, in his view, things have been selectively flagged. And he particularly calls out his, um, his foil in the Senate, Adam Schiff, for what he calls um, deceptive and false Russia collusion tweets that he says should have been flagged if Twitter was going to flag his tweets. Uh, and... In another environment, we, we might look at this as sort of an interesting tit for tat, but of, um, without much meaning for the broader world. But of course, um, we have seen, um, particularly since the election in 2016, how much influence Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms have um, in our lives, but also for our elections. And um, I, I think everyone has noticed that we have an election coming up, and so this has taken on particular urgency. So that's the genesis for this issue. And it all comes back to, at some points, to the idea of Section 230 and what Section 230 means. Now, you ask, what is Section 230? Well, Section 230 is a statute in the United States Code. It's codified at 47 USC Section 230, hence the name. And it was passed as part of the Communications Decency Act which was adopted in, 2006, I'm sorry, in 1996 as part of a larger overhaul of the Telecommunications Act. And um, the, I'll get to the purpose of Section 230 here in a minute, but um, let's talk about what happened with online platforms before Section 230 was adopted. The idea um, for many years in the United States under First Amendment law is that there is a distinction between a publisher and a distributor or vendor. So a publisher can be strictly liable for publishing or repeating unprotected material. So for example, if I make a defamatory statement about Nick, I am in a sense a publisher. I have published that statement. But if I can then convince someone, say with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette to repeat that in their newspaper, 
the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette could be strictly liable as someone who republishes that defamatory material. Assuming, of course, that it is defamatory, which would require it to be false. A distributor or vendor, on the other hand, can only be held liable for unprotected material if it knew or had reason to know of its existence. So if you have a newspaper on the one hand, which has some sort of editorial discretion, it knows what's coming into its newspaper. It makes the decision on whether to hit publish, to send that to the printer. Then on the other hand, you have the distributor, the person who takes that newspaper and um, provides it to the carrier who then takes it out to your home. Or in a different context, you have the publisher that um, actually prints and binds the book, but then the warehouse that distributes it out to the bookstore, which then sells it. At the other end, the, the warehouse and the bookseller would be more akin to distributors or vendors. And at a very high level, the distinction boils down to the exercise of editorial control and judgment. Someone with editorial control and judgment is likely to be a publisher, whereas someone without that editorial control and judgment, more of a passive conduit, as it's known, is more likely to be a distributor. And there are public policy reasons for why the courts have come up with this distinction. Because a distributor can deal in huge volumes of content, think, for example, of your local library or your local bookstore, it might self-censor. It might decide not to carry certain materials rather than open itself up to potentially ruinous liability for distributing unprotected content. The rule then is concerned with the chilling effects on speech for punishing um, distributors or vendors for unprotected material that they might not even be aware of. Now, how does that general rule play into the internet? Well, it takes us back to the early days of the internet, um, the really early days. And, and Nick, when was the first time that you had a, an internet connection? Oh my, uh, the really early days, I'm, I'm a, little, a little embarrassed to say, certainly was, I would bet, in the uh, early 90s. Maybe you can push it back to late 80s, but it was early 90s. Very, very, no memory to the computer. Uh, it took forever to get online. And if someone happened to be using one of the other telephones in my parents' home, I was dead. Yeah. We were doing nothing. So if it was late 80s, early 90s, you were at the vanguard of um, sort of commercial users of the internet, or, or, or I guess um, hop, uh, internet hobbyists, because the subscriber base for what we think of today as the internet in the late 80s was somewhere in the low hundred thousands. And even by the early 90s, it had only gone up to maybe one and a half million. In fact, by 97, um, 1997, 40 million or so Americans had the internet. Of course, the internet in the early days didn't look like um, the internet of today. There was no going on to um, you know, Firefox or Chrome or whatever browser you use and logging on to YouTube and watching hours of content. The early days of the internet looked much more like a message board or a forum, heavily text-based, um, in, some, in some cases curated and in some cases not. And the internet access was supplied by companies like, in the early days, Prodigy or CompuServe. And uh, CompuServe was, at the time, at least in the early days, owned by that noted internet giant H&R Block. Um, and Prodigy was, um, for its part, owned by um, what equally um, <laughs> known as an internet giant, Sears. Um, so uh, kind of an interesting background in history there. But CompuServe and Prodigy took different approaches to how they would make content available to their customers. So CompuServe took a relatively hands-off approach. 
it would contract with a company to provide content on a particular message board, say, for example, a message board related to journalism. And that company that it contracted with would be responsible for providing the content. But otherwise, CompuServe would take a relatively hands-off approach. Prodigy, by contrast, perhaps because of its affiliation with Sears, took a far more hands-on approach. It built itself as the family-friendly internet service provider. And it took the position, at least in its early days in the, in the early 90s, that it would moderate content. And for the two companies, this made a big difference for whether they could be held liable for their users' content. And so one of the first cases, maybe the first, that involved a question about an internet service provider's liability for user content was Cubby versus CompuServe. And Cubby was um, someone who was affiliated with a newsletter of interest to journalists. And it had been, at least it said, defamed by someone who had posted to a CompuServe message board. And it wanted to sue CompuServe for defamation, um, in its case libel, as well as some business torts. And the question was whether CompuServe could be held liable under the First Amendment. And that distinction really turned back to the idea of whether it was going to be a publisher or a mere distributor or vendor. And what it the, came down to for the court was the fact that CompuServe had not exercised the editorial control. It had contracted that out to a, an independent contractor, and so CompuServe could not be held liable. And it was precisely because it hadn't exercised that editorial control. On the other hand, a couple years later, there was a case called Stratton Oakmont v. Prodigy. Stratton Oakmont was a big investment banking firm. Um, memory serves it was um, featured in the movie Wolf of Wall Street um, at a later point in time. But when it filed its case against Prodigy, it was because someone had made a post on a Prodigy message board that, um, according to Stratton Oakmont, defamed it, said um, false things, according to Stratton Oakmont, about its business ethics and other business practices. And in that case, Prodigy did not escape liability, and the reason was because because Prodigy had exercised some editorial control. Now, the case actually never went to a final judgment. It was settled after an adverse ruling against um, Prodigy on a motion for summary judgment in which it asked the court to dismiss the claims for the same reasons the Cubby Court had done so. But it prompted people in Congress to sit up and take notice. And that might be hard to believe these days that um, people in Congress would sit up, take notice of a problem and work to solve it. But in the um, mid nineties, that seemed like it was still a possibility. And so two um, Congress men, Chris Cox, a Republican from California and um, Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, looked at this issue and saw a problem. And the problem they saw was this. They saw what's known as the moderator's dilemma where a company like Prodigy would be punished for taking a hands-on approach to moderating content, whereas a company like CompuServe would be rewarded for taking that, uh, taking that hands-off approach. And their concern, perhaps unsurprisingly, was um, the protection of children and the idea that we would want to allow companies to remove obscene, um, or lascivious content or, or, or otherwise dangerous content from the internet um, and be in a way that would protect children. And we wouldn't want to punish them for making those editorial decisions. It was in essence, part of the rise of, of the fear of children's exposure to cyber porn. 
Now, at the same time that um, representatives Cox and Wyden were considering this problem, um, others in Congress were considering it as well as part of what was known as the Communications Decency Act. And the Communications Decency Act was in fact passed as part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And in um, one particular section, it criminalized two things, knowingly sending indecent material to minors or knowingly sending um, content that would protect, depict sexual acts um, or orifices or organs. And um, there was, again, a concern from as part of this legislation that the internet was becoming a cesspool, a place that would um, expose children and minors to pornography and to other obscene material. Now that was one approach. It was to criminalize the, the knowing sending of that indecent or obscene material. But representatives Cox and Wyden took a little different approach. They wanted to incentivize or at least protect companies that took responsibility for the content. So rather than putting the burden on the users, um, Cox and Wyden wanted to allow the platforms themselves to um, take responsibility for filtering out that content without being worried about potentially ruinous liability. And so they proposed what they called a Freedom and Family Empowerment Act, which was an amendment to the Communications Decency Act. And there's a really interesting history of how it was passed, um, but um, suffice to say, it was included in the Communications Decency Act as part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Um, and the irony is that it was presented as an alternative to um, the so-called Exxon Amendment, the, the amendment that would have criminalized behavior, um, but both in fact ended up being passed. Now, the further irony is that shortly after the Communications Decency Act was passed, um, the Supreme Court of the United States considered a case challenging the anti-indecency provisions of the Communications Decency Act. It was a case called Reno v. American Civil Liberties Union, and in that case, the United States Supreme Court upheld a three-district judge panel that had struck down um, those anti-indecency provisions as unconstitutional. And going back to um, something I said a little bit ago, part of the Supreme Court's concern was the idea that speech would be chilled if we regulated too far um, and that the, the statute as drafted was overbroad. And so where that left us was with Section 230 being the only part of the section of the Communications Decency Act that remained. So what is Section 230? There are really two parts that concern us. There is Part C1 and then there is Part C2. And Part C1 is um, composed of 26 short words. And it says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Well, what does that mean? Well, to give you an example, it means that if I post a tweet, again, if I attack Nick, if I say that Nick um, wore a funny tie or, or something like that, and he finds that defamatory, um, he can't sue Twitter because Twitter as an interactive computer service is not treated as a publisher or speaker of my content. In, in a nutshell, it allows online content, distributors of content to act like an editor or a publisher, but escape liability. And there is an interesting um, 
component here of internet exceptionalism because that same type of activity in the print space might give rise to liability. But in the internet space, because of section 230, it does not. So that's section C1. Section C2 is um, also a liability protection, but it's a little bit different. It says no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of A, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. So what does that mean? It means that if you, fil if you <laughs> find material on your website that falls under any of those categories, you can remove it in good faith and be protected against liability. Now, subpart C2B likewise says no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action taken to enable or make available to information content providers or others the technical means to restrict access to material described in paragraph one. Now, um, what does that mean in plain English? It basically is an attempt to protect people that, or companies that were providing so-called so net nanny programs that would allow parents to install something that would limit access to certain websites or otherwise protect their children when they were surfing online. Now, one of the key distinctions between section C1 and section C2 is the addition of a good faith element in section C2. So in section C1, a um, interactive computer service is simply not liable. There is no scienter requirement or knowledge requirement as we um, call it in the law. Whereas under section C2, you have to have acted in good faith. And there is a major distinction for people who find themselves involved in the legal system. And the reason is because a, um, an absolute bar is much easier to assert as a defense at an early stage in litigation and to obtain a dismissal and a resolution quickly and cost effectively. Whereas something that turns on knowledge, on good faith, is much harder to defend at early stages. It often can require you to go through discovery, um, depositions, and additional motion practice that can make litigation um, time and cost prohibitive. So many of the cases and many people that find themselves relying on Section 230 for some type of defense to liability will prefer as a default to um, raise Section C1 as a defense. And again, that's the section that says no provider or user of an inter interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So that is pretty black and white. But there are a couple exceptions, and they're important. The first exception is under the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. The second exception is for intellectual property claims. The third exception is for federal criminal prosecutions. The fourth exception is for state laws that are not inconsistent with Section 230. And then the fifth is a relatively recent exception. It's called FOSTA, the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which was intended to take civil and criminal penalties against um, online sex trafficking or sex trafficking in general outside the purview of Section 230. Now, 
why um, was Section 230 passed? And what are some of the policy benefits and what are some of the policy issues? Well, Section 230 was passed, as mentioned, because of a concern for the possible exposure of children to harassing or obscene or pornographic material online. And again, the thought was, if we empower these internet platforms with the tools and the protections to moderate that content, then we will create the right incentives. And the internet, in a sense, will self-police. Another concern that underlay Section 230 and that underlies some of the early decisions was the idea of a heckler's veto. And it came down to this idea, that if you have a, a vendor, a vendor or distributor might not be liable if it doesn't know of the defamatory content. But if it's put on notice and it has reason to know of the defamatory content, then it could face liability. And so there was a concern that keeping a traditional sort of First Amendment analysis online could create a heckler's veto situation in which I could um, find a tweet or a Facebook post online that I didn't like and send Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whoever the information content um, provider was a letter saying, this is defamatory. I demand you take it down. And they would have two choices. They could leave it up and face um, the potential liability if my allegation turned out to be true, or they could take it down while they reviewed it. And the idea was that um, most information content providers, most platforms would default to taking it down rather than exposing themselves to liability. And so I could act in bad faith and still end up um, having a, a platform take something down. And the, the thought was that could be used in a way that would suppress speech. And that's, of course, what the heckler's veto is. But So that was a policy concern that Section 230 addressed. A policy benefit that um, Section 230 has provided, perhaps not intentionally, is that it has fostered competition by removing barriers to entry. So think about the, the issue with the heckler's veto. Right now, as of today, YouTube gets an estimated 400 hours of new content every 60 seconds. Twitter has 500 million or more tweets that are posted every day. Facebook sees a similarly just obscene amount of material posted on a daily basis. If all of that was potentially liability creating, or it had to be reviewed before it could be posted, or had to be reviewed on the receipt of a, of a takedown request or some sort of other notice, it would be extraordinarily cost prohibitive for any company without substantial financial backing to enter into this arena. But by allowing for these types of liability protections, the thought is that these companies, new companies can enter the space where otherwise they couldn't. And in fact, that's something that we've seen happen. I think Nick will talk about that a little bit further on about some of the conservative platforms that have sprung up to fill um, a void of what they see as being a true free speech platform. Another um, reason why um, Section 230 has its adherence is because, um, again, it makes it um, easier for new entrants to put in place policies to moderate content. And that helps eliminate cyber cesspools. So, you know, while you have on the one hand people that say that Section 230 allows um, the removal of content, it does not allow for free and open um, expression, there are other folks who look at that as a very good thing. 
because it allows um, these platforms like Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, to remove um, posts that are harassing, that um, particularly of marginalized, um, historically marginalized groups. And it makes the community somewhere where people actually want to participate. Um, and there are people who say, you know, that um, these cyber cesspools will take care of themselves, um, that even without Section 230, people will move from a platform that has turned into a cesspool and start a new one. But um, I think it's hard to dispute, Nick, that Section 230 and the um, opportunity it gives uh, platforms to moderate content and remove those things has um, made that much easier. So that's our, our history. And I think Nick's going to take it over from here with a discussion of what Trump's executive order does, what its intention is, and um, what the response to that has been. Absolutely. I, I think, Joseph, this, my part should be pretty, pretty short. What you said seems to be clear as a bell, and it can never lead to any type of dispute, um, you know, involving the president or technology groups or anything like that. But fast forward from uh, 1996 up to now, and in May of this year, President Trump issued an executive order you talked about it earlier, it's his executive order on preventing online censorship. And it's only a few pages, I think it's something like eight pages if I remember right, but there's a lot of info in this. And the first thing that the executive order does is it makes some policy statements about America. And you know, a lot of these we probably don't have a lot of dispute with, but it's how they're applied that is gonna give rise to the dispute. You know, the, the executive order explains that free speech, free and open debate is a bedrock of U.S. democracy, that the ability of people to talk, in, including talking online, is important to the U.S., the U.S. democracy, the debate among the, the U.S. citizens. It says that we have, we can't, let me say it that way, we can't allow a limited number of groups, which it later defines as online platforms. We can't allow a limited number of groups determine what Americans can see online and or determine what they can say online. So it says a, a principle of the US is to ensure that section 20, uh, section 230, section 20, section 230 that you just talked about is interpreted correctly that it's not interpreted too broadly, and it's not pushed beyond its intended scope. So one of the things I think is interesting is the executive order cites to a, a case decision, and I think it's a US Supreme Court case decision, but it says section 230 was intended to, um, be, uh, to further Congress's view that the internet is a forum for a true diversity of political discourse. And that factors right into what you talked a little bit about and what the executive order talks about, and that is censoring of certain viewpoints. You know, you and I talked a few days ago, the, uh, the executive order doesn't come out and say, Republicans are being censored, Democrats aren't. It doesn't come out and say, conservatives are being censored, liberals aren't. It talks more generally than that, and talks about viewpoint-based uh, expression, viewpoint-based censorship. So when it talks about 230, it's, it goes back and, and quotes what you just said, and in particular, section C2, and the type of material that should be 
governed by Section 230 and the immunity from liability, and it quotes them. You know, it's this, as you said, this good faith or good Samaritan removal or censoring of obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessive, violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable content. And it says that's the scope of Section 230, at least C2, and it's the policy of the United States to make sure that that is not distorted. So is it Trump's position that those things from Section C2 also inform the protection in Section C1? It is. It is. If you look later to his directives, I break this down into three parts, the executive order. First, these policies or these statements of policies about the United States, I think a lot of them probably would be universally accepted. Then how we get to where we are, the growth of the online platforms, and then his directives. And one of his directives we'll get to in a minute is he he directs executive agencies to look at instances, analyze and assess instances where online platforms lose the protection of C2. But then he says, but also if they don't have C2, analyze C1 and determine, you know, if they don't have C2 immunity from liability, analyze C1 and see if they also lose liability in certain circumstances. So the executive order talks a lot about Section 230 or Section 230C generally. It doesn't really make this clear delineation between this is what Trump thinks governs uh, under C1, and here's the actions we need to take with regard to C1, and here's what I think governs under C2, and here are the actions we need to take kind of mixes them up until you get to these couple of specific directives to look at XYZ under C1. You know, after setting forth these bedrock policies that he says are United States policies, we all agree with this. It, it, it then has a section, a discussion in the executive orders, well, why are we here? And this is where a lot of discussion is made about online platforms. So when we talk about the executive order and the rest that we're going to talk about, the remainder of the discussion about it, we're going to talk about online platforms. That's the terminology used in the executive order, and it's actually defined in the executive order. And I think that definition is important because if you look at the definition, online platform, if I say online platform to you, Joseph, what do you think we're talking about? Well, I think of, you know, Facebook or, or Twitter or, or YouTube. I, I think of something that would allow me to um, post some type of user-generated content, which is really um, a big part of what Section 230 has, has ended up protecting. Agreed, 100%. What I think people need to be aware of is the online platform is, is defined in the executive order a little more broadly than that. It says almost verbatim what you said. It governs the contents, applications or websites where users can create content or engage in networking. But it also says online platforms also includes any general search engine. So would an online platform be Google? I think it would. And if you look at some of President Trump's statements after the issuance of the executive order, including the announcement, of the issuance of the executive order. I think in that, that announcement in the Oval Office, he specifically referenced Google. So I think anyone looking at the executive order or thinking about it or thinking about this whole topic and debate need to be aware of how broad that definition is. So now that we know the executive order is focusing in on, 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 on online platforms, what does he say about them? He says that the online platforms have grown 
in recent years to a point at which we have to have a discussion about the application of First Amendment principles to online communication, that the internet has become an, an inherently critical point of Americans' lives, that this is the place, the internet, where most people read their news, where most people get caught up, where most people contact and communicate with family and friends. And the executive order calls the internet the 21st century equivalent of the public square. So thinking about it in those terms, the executive order makes the point that the, the platforms you mentioned, the Facebook, well, Facebook, Twitter, it also mentions YouTube, it also mentions Instagram, says these platforms, it uses the phrase, wield immense power to determine what users, Americans, can see and what they can say on the internet. And it says, uh, these platforms are engaging in selective censorship. Again, doesn't say censorship of Republicans, doesn't say censorship of conservatives. It says selective censorship. And it talks about tens of thousands of Americans have made complaints, uh, including to the White House's website research tool, made complaints that they feel like they've been subject to having their accounts flagged, having their accounts deleted, having their content deleted, having their content suppressed. So, um, with that in mind, he then, oh, oh, there's another one I should bring up. And it's kind of a, it's a foreshadowing to what's gonna happen later. There is a little bit of language in the executive order, the one we're talking about today on preventing online censorship, where when the order is talking about the growth of these online platforms and the power that they wield, and here are the examples of how people feel that they've been selectively censored or, or shadow banned or had their content suppressed. It also talks about some of these online platforms uh, providing or creating search engines for the Chinese government that would blacklist search results that involve things like human rights. Mm -hmm. That some of these online platforms um, aid the Chinese government in suppressing its mass incarceration of certain religious um, minorities. And that some of these platforms aid the Chinese government in spreading disinformation about the origins of the COVID-19 virus. So, you know, if, if, if you read the tea leaves, it'll make sense. Some of those <laughs> allegations, some of those statements become much more critical when we talk about the, the administration's later executive orders against ByteDance and Tencent uh, involving TikTok and WeChat, which come out more recently. But anyway, a little bit of that peppered into the online censorship executive order. So with that in mind, what does the order then say? It says, look, we need to make sure that we keep in mind when we're looking at these online platforms, we keep in mind their power, we keep in mind the importance of free speech and open debate, and we keep in mind the intended scope of 230. And those are really some of the, the principles that lead the executive order to the directives. You know, what does it do? It's not just a policy statement that says, let, let's make a bunch of policy statements and see what people think about it. The executive order, as these things do, puts forth several directives to executive agencies and executive departments. And, you know, you can read a lot of people online. Some of them say they're, I've seen some people say it has four main directives. It has five main directives. You could slice it a lot of ways, I think, to me, I baby step and, and, and try to dissect every single one of them to say how many, what does it actually say and how many things does it say? And I've come up with eight. Um, so let's run through those eight 
and give you an idea of, of what it's exactly telling the, the executive agencies and departments to do. And when we talk about these, pay attention to the verbs, pay attention to what's actually being told to do, because the Trump administration is going to rely on that later when it gets a challenge to this executive order. So the eight directives, number one, it tells all executive departments and agencies to ensure their application of section 230C, not C1 specifically or C2, but their application of 230C, quote, properly reflects the narrow purpose of this section, uh, close quote. So that's number one, ensure. Look at it, assess it, ensure. Number two, Secretary of Commerce within 60 days. Uh, within 60 days, Secretary of Commerce in conjunction with some others like the Attorney General is to file a petition with the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, asking the FCC to propose regulations. So file a petition asking the FCC to propose regulations about the instances when an online platform would lose its immunity from liability under C1 and also when if it can't avail itself of C1, it would lose its immunity from liability. I'm sorry, if it can, it, analyze first C2 immunity from liability. And if it loses that C2 immunity from liability, analyze also in those instances, if it also would lose its C1 immunity from liability. And this is one of the main times, one of the main places in the executive order where it makes that pinpoint distinction between C2 immunity and C1 immunity. Otherwise, it talks about them in terms of just Section 230 or just Section 230C. So that one was a direction to the Secretary of Commerce, the, the, um, the Attorney General, and then others to petition the FCC. Number three is all about the money. Uh, the third thing it does is to tell the head of each department to review, that's, that's the operative verb, to review your department's spending, see how much you spend on advertising, see how much you spend on advertising on online platform. Okay, that's number three. What are they supposed to do with that? Well, number four, they have to give a, create a report and give it to the Office of Management and Budget. Okay, number five, the DOJ is directed to review that report and review the platforms that are listed in that report. See if they engage in what it calls viewpoint-based speech restrictions. So, so far we've got assess how you're applying 230 and the scope of it, petition the FCC to propose regs, look at how we're spending money, where we're spending it, and whether those platforms, if we are spending on platforms, whether they engage in viewpoint-based restriction. Number six, six, seven, I think are a little more meaty, and then eight is just kind of a catch-all, my reading of it. Six tells the FTC, not the FCC, Federal Communications Commission that we talked about before, but the FTC, Federal Trade Commission. It says, consider taking action under UDAP. So pushing a pause button on the executive order for a second, let's talk about UDAP. UDAP, U-D-A-P, UDAP is an acronym that you find in a lot of statutes, including in the federal statutes. And that's what the executive order is talking about here. It stands for unfair and deceptive acts or practices and it relates to unfair and deceptive acts and practices in trade or commerce. There's some other statutes, federal statutes, that add another A to the acronym for abusive, but for right now, this, this executive order is talking about unfair and deceptive acts or practices. And what, 
let me, let me try to make a complex law one sentence. What it looks for is, are you doing unfair or deceptive things when you're conducting business? Are you misrepresenting things? Are you misleading things, misleading people? So the sixth directive in the executive order doesn't specifically say, are we losing liability under section 230? Are we losing it under 230C? Are we losing under C1? Are we losing under C2? It says, look at these online platforms and this viewpoint-based restriction that they're doing and look at it through the lens of UDAP. Have they represented in their user agreements or their other public documents that they're telling the users and telling the public, hey, we don't discriminate based on a viewpoint, but in reality, they do. And if so, I think the point to the F FTC here is, look at whether that's a UDAP violation. Look at whether they're misrepresenting things to the public. And if they are, then it could be a, a UDAP violation. And the executive order talks here about that White House reporting tool I talked about a moment ago, where within weeks of it being set up, 16,000 Americans complained that they thought they were having their free speech curtailed and suppressed on the internet. So it, it, the executive order tells the FTC to look at these 16,000 complaints and see if they may violate the law and there might be action that needs to be taken. The seventh, seven of the, of the eight that I see, the seventh is a direction to the attorney general. And it tells the attorney general, again about UDAP, it tells the attorney general, create a working group to look at state UDAP laws. The prior one told the FTC to look at the federal UDAP laws. Number seven is telling the AG, the Attorney General, create a working group to look at state UDAP laws and whether some of this conduct would violate state UDAP, unfair and deceptive act or, acts or practices laws. Also, to the extent states don't have laws, the Attorney General is told, create model legislation that they can consider. Also, take this information, consider whether it should be made public, um, and consider, oh, consider the 16,000 complaints from the White House reporting tool. I think six and seven, I don't know. I, to me, I, I, I'm a litigator by, by heart and grew up as a litigator. So when I see people talking about UDAP, I start thinking about, I'm going to be representing someone who's being accused of engaging in UDAP. So six and seven to me seem really meaty and seem, you know, pretty, pretty big to me. Number eight, I think is a, is a bit of a catch-all. It tells the attorney general to, develop proposed federal legislation to the extent any is needed to carry out the purpose of the executive orders. I view that as a catch-all. So a lot, I think, is packed into those eight or nine pages of that executive order. And, you know, then it, it takes us to the point of, well, how was it received? How was it, you know, what were, what were the responses to it? Before we get there, Nick, it seems like, um, the president is really trying to use UDAP as the hammer to force compliance. That and the removal of the liability protection, because you know, sort of sometimes lost in this this debate is the distinction between the private actor and the public actor in the First Amendment context. And these online platforms are generally going to be um, private actors. Twitter is a private company. Facebook's a private company. YouTube, etc. And there's no First Amendment right to have your speech um, published on that private platform. So it seems like what the president is doing here is saying, you might not have a First Amendment obligation to publish it, but if you don't, 
if you don't carry this particular viewpoint, I'm going to ensure that you lose your liability protections. Um, I'm going to ensure that you might find yourself open to liability under these other statutes. Is that what's going on here? There is a lot of that. I think if you can read between the lines, yeah. It, I, I, in this, in this regard, I break it down into sort of two big camps. Is the early on is it? it he's telling these private actors, if you make content moderation decisions, and this is a, almost taken verbatim from the lawsuit that's ultimately filed against him, if you make content moderation decisions that the government doesn't agree with later on, you're running the risk of having your immunity from liability pulled, and that can make you liable for any content decision, not just for about President Trump's tweets, not just about Cruz's tweets, not just about anybody else's, but anybody's. You can lose all that. And that's the first half. And I think the second half is, yeah, the UDAP can be a hammer. But there he's focusing on, are you misrepresenting things? Are you telling your users in your user agreement, which I don't know, I mean, how many people have read the user agreement or some other public document? Are you telling them you're acting one way, but you're acting another? And that's the misrepresentation. So I think they're trying to use UDAP to attack the problem through a different channel. Absolutely. It almost sounds like he's goading some of these platforms like Twitter or Facebook or um, YouTube into, you know, admitting that they censor conservative viewpoints. It could be. I, it, it, you could definitely, I would think, if you read the, the part six or directive six and directive seven of the executive order, it's talking about UDAP, it's talking about misrepresentations, a defense could be, well, there were no misrepresentations here. Look at my user agreement. If you scroll down to whatever section, section 13, section 14, I say I reserve the right to take down conservative comments. I, I reserve the right to remove, remove Republicans' videos. You know, I would think if there, those statements were made and then those actions were done, it would be tough to claim that the platform misrepresented things to its users. Maybe. Does he um, give any indication in the executive order on, on what um, he thinks would fall under Section 230's ambit, at least as he interprets it, other than your obscene, lewd, lascivious content, et cetera? You know, not by name. Not by name. He quotes it, if you look at the structure of the executive order, it's almost like this is his defense later on, and we'll talk about it in a second, but this is, the executive order is almost like a preliminary move. It's not taking action, it's telling the executive departments to think about taking action. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that comes back a little bit to your question. What does he say? Well, can there be something that doesn't fit those exact words, lascivious, obscene, that still is under the section 230 and, but could be, but it's not spelled out in the executive order. I think where you, where the executive order does address that, it doesn't address it by name. He, that's when the executive order tells the departments to assess the proper scope of Section 230, assess whether it's being applied correctly. So I, I read some of this and the way it's drafted, and it's certainly, like I say, his defense in the lawsuit that we're going to talk about a second ago. I, I The more I think about it, the more I think it's, well, we're not telling anyone to take action. We're telling someone, we're telling them all to think about taking action. And one of the things he brings up 
in the defense. One of the, one of the arguments in their defense so far is this order doesn't impact any private party. And it doesn't tell any executive department to impact any private party. It just tells the executive departments to, and then it quotes the executive order, uh, assess this proper scope, contemplate this, create a working group to study this. So I think it kind of kicks that can down the road that you're asking about. Could something still be under 230 but not be in that list of lewd, lascivious? Um, yeah, it could. It's certainly not foreclosed by the order. The order doesn't say it's only these things, but it's it's... It's, it's discussed in the way of, we need to make sure that we're all applying the um, immunity from liability in section 230 properly, and that its scope is not, as the executive order says, distorted. Well, it sounds like I put the cart before the horse. Tell us about the, the response. It sounds like um, it was um, not met with universal acclaim. No, no. Um, lots, of, lots of people responded to it. Lots of people responded to it negatively. But no, you, I think your point is, is you're, you're reading the tea leaves really well, because one of the responses was this uh, advocacy group, a trade organization, the Center for Democracy and Technology, you know, CDT, and they've actually sued President Trump in his official capacity, sued him in federal court in D.C., and the one and only object of their lawsuit is for the, the court to declare that the executive order is unlawful for the court to enter an injunction against President Trump and anyone else in the executive branch from taking any action to enforce the executive order. And then, of course, the, the suit also seeks attorney's fees. What the suit says, the thrust of it, is the executive order violates the First Amendment. I know you're not shocked by that. You know, what's interesting is if you read the executive order, it wraps itself in the First Amendment saying, free speech, open debate, First Amendment. If you read the CDT's lawsuit against him, it also wraps itself in the First Amendment. Everything the president's doing is, is violating the First Amendment. So we have two people, we have two camps, both saying that they're trying to uphold and foster the First Amendment. Let me tell you a little bit about CDT's complaint that it filed to start the lawsuit against President Trump. It attacks the executive order saying it violates the First Amendment two ways. It says, first off, the executive order is plainly retaliatory. It's retaliatory against Twitter because Twitter is in exercising in free speech and criticizing the government, and the government's retaliating for that. And the, and the complaint quotes uh, President Trump's statements. It quotes statements that it quotes the executive order. It quotes statements that he made when the executive order is being issued. It quotes the fact that he called out by name. Uh, the, um, the head of Twitter's um, Department of Site Integrity, I forget the actual title he has, but he is the head of Twitter's Site Integrity. And President Trump, on issuing the executive order, calls this guy out by name and tells everybody what his name is. So, you know, there's that. Other members of the Trump administration have been on news programs saying this guy's name again, saying, well, he's, you know, wake him up because he's going to get a bunch of new followers. Somebody needs to tell him he's going to have a bunch of new followers today. And so the first ground that the lawsuit against Trump relies on is, hey, this is plainly retaliatory against Twitter because it's exercising its right to criticize the government. That's a violation of First Amendment. The second one is the broader one of this executive order is going to have the effect of chilling speech because, and sort of the quote I used before, online platforms 
and others are going to see that if you make content moderation decisions that the government doesn't later agree with, you run the risk of losing all of your uh, immunity from liability. I mean, the, the, the irony here is it seems like it would really set, um, you know, Twitter up for this scenario where, where Donald Trump could create problems for them. I mean, um, the man is, our, our president is uh, well known for many things, but one of them is for um, his Twitter activity. And so, you know, there's that sort of irony where if uh, Twitter loses protections, um, someone could sue the president, assuming he doesn't have protections from his office in the executive branch for defamation and sue Twitter at the same time. Yeah, possible, possible. I, I think so. I don't see any reason why they couldn't. Um, you know, and, and the complaint, I don't know, I think this is kind of related. The complaint talks about their practical effects of this and their practical effects of when the president speaks. And in particular, they look at some of his tweets and they talk about, you know, they give some examples. Carrier, I don't know if you're familiar with Carrier, the, um, the home HVAC air conditioning manufacturer. It was considering moving some operations overseas. Trump became critical of it. It decided not to do that. Same thing with General Motors. It was going to um, either start a factory or invest more capital in a factory that... Um, uh, was going to manufacture the Chevy Cruze automobile overseas. And Trump was critical of that. They decided against it. They decided to invest a bunch of money in facilities here in the U.S. Same thing with Lockheed Martin. Trump, I think it was a tweet where he made this statement. It may not have been, but I, I, my memory is it was a tweet. He made uh, critical statements about the cost of the F-35 uh, jet. Lockheed Martin's stock price dropped. I think it dropped something like 5% when he made those. So CDT, the plaintiff that's suing Trump, uh, makes the point of his statements, whether they be tweets or whether they be statements elsewhere and whether they be an executive order, have real world effects. Um, so a couple other things, I know, I know I'm running long, but a couple other things about the lawsuit. In particular, we need to talk about this. One of the sections of the lawsuit, uh, I think really important is CDT talks a lot about its standing. It's standing to bring the claims. And, you know, put a pause on our discussion for a second. Probably everyone who's a lawyer knows what standing is, but if you don't know what standing is, it's your ability under the law to bring a claim against someone for an action they took. So, so you know, earlier, Joseph, you were talking about you making a comment about my tie. <laughs> uh, you make a, a bad comment about my tie. My secretary couldn't sue you for that. Maybe I could, I don't know, maybe I could, maybe I couldn't, but she certainly couldn't. She doesn't have standing, you know? If, if Likewise, if, if I went out there and was mean to my secretary, which would never happen, but if I went out there and I was mean to my secretary, you wouldn't be allowed to sue me for some sort of harassment she would have to. So CDT is smart. It's, this is not its first rodeo. Sections in CDT's complaint, I think is really important, and that's standing. Uh, you know, the concept of standing we've talked about before is not everybody can sue someone if they commit a wrong. You had made a comment earlier about my tie. You know, I, I like this tie. I don't know what the problem is, but you made a comment about this tie. And say for some reason that was a wrong that you could be sued for. Well, my secretary couldn't sue you for that. Why? Because it's not her tie. You were making a comment about me. I would be the one that has to sue you on that. And, and same, similar concept if if I went out and was mean to my secretary this afternoon, 
you know, something would never happen, but say I got really mad, I spilled coffee on my tie. And so I went out and I was mean to my secretary, you wouldn't be able to sue me for that. You couldn't sue me for that, she would have to. So CDT, I think anticipates a challenge to its standing to bring these claims. And it includes a lot of discussion in its complaint about how it is allowed to bring these claims. It has standing to bring these claims. And it focuses on things like its mission being to advocate for free speech online. Also, the fact that the executive order is going to require it to reallocate significant resources and to divert resources from activities that it was already doing to, and it makes a long laundry list, it includes a long laundry list in the complaint. It's going to have to monitor these FCC proposed regulations. It's going to have to monitor the AGE working group. It's going to have to look at these UDAP things. It's going to have to do a bunch of stuff. So that's its way to say it has standing. And, and then, you know, what we talked about a second ago, it, it really only has one object in its lawsuit. It's not after a billion dollars from President Trump. It's not after a million dollars. It's not after a public apology. It's asking that the court do a couple things. Declare the executive order invalid as violating the First Amendment and also enter an injunction against the president and anyone else in the executive department from taking any action to enforce it. So that's the lawsuit. It got filed. What is President Trump's, the Trump administration, what's its response? What it did was actually move to dismiss. It filed a motion uh, that is called a motion to dismiss. It's governed by Rule 12B of, of the uh, procedure rules. And essentially the pur purpose of a motion to dismiss is to say, like the, legally, this case can't go forward. There's a fatal flaw in the law. There's a fatal flaw in the complaint that the law says it can't go forward. And the motion argues, yeah, it argues a, little, a lot of things, but in the interest of time, I'll cut it down to, to the, the bare specifics. What it says is, plaintiff, you don't have an adequate, an active, a legitimate case or controversy. And at the risk of trying to boil down 200 years of jurisprudence to a couple sentences, let me say this. The concept of case or controversy means that courts only decide live disputes. Courts aren't policy-making bodies. Courts aren't legislatures. So before a court can entertain a lawsuit, before it can have what's called subject matter jurisdiction over a lawsuit, there has to be a case or controversy. And that's the phrase that's used. Well, a lot of elements make up whether there's a case or controversy. And that's where the Trump administration attacks. First, it says, plaintiff, CDT, advocacy organization, you don't have an injury in fact. You don't have an injury. And if you're not injured by my order, then you don't have standing. Let me tell you for a second about the injury. It says, these, these things you put in your complaint that you're gonna to have to make what it calls voluntary budget decisions, that's not enough to give you standing. That maybe in some circumstances, limited circumstances, they are, but you don't meet them. Um, it also says, come on, let's be honest here. You're not getting involved in this debate because of the executive order. You've been involved in this debate for a while, years, maybe decades. So there's nothing about this executive order that is anything other than a Thursday to you. You're going to keep doing work that you've been doing for a while, and you're going to keep doing it long after this executive order is over. So that's the injury, in fact, it, it, it addresses. And that's the first way the Trump administration says that, that CDT's lawsuit should be kicked, should be dismissed because it doesn't have standing. That alone, if the court agrees, would be sufficient. But the Trump administration has two additional ones. One, 
it relies on the concept in the law called redressability. And that's another part of this concept of do you have a case or controversy? And, it, and redressability focuses on, is the court able to give you the relief you seek, Mr. or Mrs. Plaintiff? If you're coming to the court and you file a lawsuit and you're asking the court to take Donald Trump out and give him a good spanking, well, court's probably not gonna be able to do that. You might have a redressability problem. Similarly, and a little more legitimately, the motion to dismiss the Trump administration files says you CDT, you have a redressability problem because there are only very limited instances where a court can enter declaratory relief, this declaration that you seek, or an injunction that you seek against a sitting president. Usually can't happen, can only happen in a few small instances, you don't meet them. So that's problem number two with your lawsuit. That alone also will be enough to kick the lawsuit out. Then number three, third reason that lawsuit should be dismissed is it says, look, the, the lawsuit is not ripe. And we sometimes in the law call that unwrap, unripe. This dispute is not ripe yet. And this goes back, if you think about this, goes back to when I said earlier when we were looking at the executive order to pay attention to the verbs that it uses, those all factor into this argument. And what the motion to dismiss says is, we said a moment ago, look, the executive order doesn't do anything to a private party. It doesn't even tell executive departments to do anything to a private party. It just tells them to think about stuff. And the examples it uses is, the examples it uses are the executive order tells the Secretary of Commerce to petition the FTC to request, might be denied, that the FTC, the FTC, that the FCC, sorry, that the FCC propose regulations. Well, the proposed regulations might not ever be enacted. It also tells in section three, all about the money, it tells the executive departments to assess how much money you pay and assess how much is paid to online platforms. But then the, um, the, exec the uh, motion to dismiss says, and read the plain language of the executive order multiple times throughout it. It tells executive uh, departments and agencies to think about these things, assess them, propose them, as appropriate and consistent with applicable law. And that's a phrase that's report, repeated multiple times, including it ha the executive order has a section, a separate section, I think it's section eight, that says this executive order shall be applied consistent with applicable law. And that would include the First Amendment. So wrapping it all up, the, the um, Trump administration says, there's no lawsuit here, at least not yet. You might have a ripe dispute later, you can't get an injunction against me. You can't get declaratory relief against me. And you're still going to have a standing problem because you don't have an actual injury in fact. So where do we stand? That motion's been filed. It's a long motion. It's, you can find it on the internet if you want to read it. But where, what happens then? Well, nothing. As of today, nothing has happened. The uh, plaintiff, CDT, gets the opportunity to respond. Its response not due until the end of the month, uh, August 31. And then Trump, the Trump administration gets the opportunity to reply, usually does. It's, it's the Trump administration's motion, so it gets the last word. Its reply brief is not due until September 21. Usually that would be the end of the briefing and then the matter will be ripe for the court to uh, decide. That may take a couple months, it may take more, uh, but that's the status of that lawsuit. So where are we right now? If we try to sum it all up and, and Joseph, I'll throw it back to you a little bit for your comments too, but where are we right now? Uh, we definitely have this executive order out there. 
There has been some action taken on it. You remember the Secretary of Commerce was supposed to petition the, the uh, FCC within 60 days. That petition's been filed. So there's been some action. Has there been any clarification yet on Section 230? Has there been any change? I don't think so yet. I think we're still sort of where we were before, but we're heading towards something. What do you think? I think that's right. I think that the one thing that we can predict is whatever the um, regulations come out um, to be, they're going to be challenged in court as well. Even if this lawsuit is dismissed because a court says it's not ready for me to decide, I need to wait for the regulations, then all that will happen is we'll wait for the regulations. And even if this goes forward, I would assume that uh, the regulations themselves would be the subject of significant comment and, and also legal challenges going forward. I, I get the Trump administration's point that they're saying anything that we do must be consistent with applicable law, but I think the reply from these groups, Center for Democracy and Technology and other um, organizations opposing this, is that the Trump administration is really trying to stretch um, or twist the meaning of those, those laws, and that's the purpose of their claim. So I agree with you. I think we're probably status quo for the time being. And of course, all of this could change really significantly if the Biden, if we have a Biden administration in 2021, they might I, withdraw. The, they might withdraw the executive order. I agree. I agree. That would, I was that thinking would... as you were you were talking, it's it's just really interesting to hear some of these arguments about the dominance of these platforms because you don't have to go back very far to recall other platforms that at some point were dominant. You know, I, I think, for example, the first website that I built and how I learned to code was on a GeoCities platform. And GeoCities was shut down years ago. Um, you know, or how MySpace used to be the um, heavyweight in the social networking arena, um, the title to which it took from Friendster. And now to the extent that they exist, their shells of them, their former selves. So it's really interesting the assumption underlying this order that the status quo of these companies having the dominant platform will stay the same for the foreseeable future. And I know we didn't get the chance today to talk about TikTok, um, and that will have to be a subject for another um, sort of podcast companion. But TikTok itself took over from vine which was a twitter product that was shut down several years ago so it's a it's an interesting assumption underlying the executive order and and musically yeah that's true but um well all we can say is that the the trump administration is um certainly looking at um revisiting section 230 it's in the process and we'll be covering this as we go forward in our decoded newsletters. We were happy to have you join us today for our first podcast companion to the decoded newsletter. Our plan is to do these every fifth issue of decoded. So look forward to the next one with issue 10. And until then, I'm Joseph Schaefer. And, and I'm Nick Mooney. All right. Thanks everyone. Thanks.